Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. If you enjoy the program, and it fills at least part of your day, please consider supporting. I hate the idea of setting up subscriptions. I'd rather make more episodes. It's super easy through PayPal, at WOWB17, and you will get a shout-out. Now on to uh, today's show. This episode is intended to be the first in a series that I'm calling Citizen Soldiers. The vast majority of the men and women who fought the Second World War were not professional soldiers. They were just plain guys and gals who joined up or who were called up from Civvy Street to do their duty. This series is going to look at the aircraft that were civilian first and then were called up to do their duty. I think it should be interesting to look at these aircraft that were initially designed for another peaceful purpose and then had to be adapted for the rigors of wartime service. Let's start off the series with a warbird that I've been looking forward to profiling from the very beginning of this podcast. The FW-200 Condor. Why have I been anxious about doing this one? The first reason is because I find it bloody beautiful. I think it was one of the most good-looking of the 1930s airliners, with graceful and sleek lines. My other big favorite from this time is the Lockheed Constellation, which was also called up to serve in the USAAF and will be a part of the series. And I go back and forth on which one I find more appealing to look at. Of course, the Connie went on to do much more while the Condor's fortunes followed a similar trajectory to the regime that spawned it, finally ending in 1945. Anyway, enough of this blah 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 introduction, and let's get on to looking at this first citizen-soldier warbird. Design and Development The chief designer for the Condor was Kurt Tank, and I find it pretty ballsy that in 1936, after Tank had only developed light fabric-covered single-engine biplanes and trainers, that he made the leap to propose to the Deutsche Lufthansa airline that he and Focke Wolf design a supermodern, four-engine, all-metal airliner capable of transcontinental flight. But Tank was a ballsy kind of guy. He was a pilot, an aeronautical engineer and a World War I veteran, where he had followed his family's tradition of serving as an officer in the cavalry, even though he was more into airplanes than horses. For an in-depth look at Tank, check out my episode on the FW-190, Tank's other famous airplane. Anyway, this proposal wasn't just revolutionary to Tank and Fuck-A-Wolf as a major leap in complexity for their projects. It was a leap in aviation in general. Up until this point, long-range trans-oceanic flight was done by flying boats, which had some obvious advantages. The first was, during the pioneering phase of aviation, many destinations didn't have runways. It was a chicken-egg situation where, why would you put a runway there when there were no land planes coming to your city? And no land airplanes would fly to your city if you didn't have any runways there. But most major seaside cities had ports, so a flying boat could land in the bay and taxi up to the quay or set up a ramp to a parking area. As an aside, 
did you know that this is the reason why airliner pilots still call the area where they park, load, and unload a ramp, even though the area is totally flat? Well, now you do. The other reason is that, again, in the early days of aviation, the engines were much more likely to quit for mechanical reasons, and if you were a flying boat that had an engine failure, well, you could always revert to boat status and land on the water, and wait for help. Land airplanes have some distinct disadvantages in ditching, so it's not really an option. But seaplanes have some major disadvantages in that they are not very aerodynamic, and thus are slow and could have limited range. Also, by the late 30s, regional and national air travel was beginning to become more normal, and naturally passengers wanted to use the new land airports rather than the hassle of transferring to a flying boat tied up down at the port. Kurt Tank wanted to make the jump to transoceanic land plane flight, and so he proposed a four-engine, all-metal monoplane powered by four American-built, 875-horsepower Pratt & Whitney Hornet air-cooled radial engines. It wouldn't be pressurized, so it would be limited to a 10,000-feet cruise. Deutsche Lufthansa liked the idea, and Tank set his team including designer Ludwig Mittelhuber and project director Wilhelm Bansheimer to work. Prototypes On the 27th of July, 1937, at Neuenlander Airfield, none other than Kurt Tank himself climbed into the cockpit of the new airliner, started up, and took off in what had now been named the FW-200 Condor V-1. The name was fitting, as it employed a long wingspan with a high aspect ratio that was more often seen in sailplanes, but which would allow for long-range flight. The real Condor's bird wing used a similar design to achieve an impressive soaring capability. The aircraft used modern materials and techniques with its flush, riveted, light alloy construction. Two other prototypes were also constructed, both with BMW 132G1 radial engines, which were license-built Pratt & Whitney R1690 Hornets. On Wednesday the 10th of August 1938, at around 7.30pm, the first Condor prototype, now known as the Condor 200S1 and christened Brandenburg, took off from Flugplatz Berlin-Stacken. It had been modified to carry extra fuel and was being flown without passengers, but with a crew of four, including a pilot, co-pilot, flight engineer, and radio operator. They turned west. 24 hours and 56 minutes later, they landed at Floyd Bennett Field, Brooklyn, New York, USA, at 1.50 p.m. local time, after a non-stop distance flown of 6,371 kilometers, or almost 4,000 miles. They had flown through some rough weather, but other than an oil leak that was soon repaired, the flight had been uneventful. On Saturday, the 13th of August, the Brandenburg took off and flew to Flughafen Berlin-Tempelhof. With better tailwinds on this eastbound flight, they arrived only 19 hours, 56 minutes later. 
For a generation who were used to transatlantic travel taking weeks or days in the case of the Zeppelin, this flight must have seemed almost miraculous. A couple of months later, in November 1938, the same crew flew Brandenburg from Berlin to Tokyo via Basra, Karachi, and Hanoi, and set a Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, or FAI, world record for speed over courses of 151 miles per hour. Although Brandenburg and her crew had done amazing things, her luck did run out on the 6th of December 1938. On approach to Manila, things got awful quiet all of a sudden in the Condor when all four of Brandenburg's engines stopped. Unable to glide far enough to reach the airfield, the crew ditched the Condor in Manila Bay and all the crew were rescued. Sources disagree on the exact cause of the fuel starvation that prematurely ended the flight. It could have been the incorrect selection of tanks, a broken fuel line, or a fuel pump failure. The swim in Manila Bay notwithstanding, the concept of the Condor had been proven and orders began flowing in. Production Full-scale production of the 26-seat airliners began in 1938 with orders from Lufthansa. The Condor Syndicate, which was a German-owned airline that operated in South America, and the Danish Airlines. In 1939, Imperial Japanese Airways also placed orders for the airliner. Also in 1939, it was decided that Adolf Hitler should also upgrade to the new airliner for his own personal transport. Up until this point, the Fuhrer had flown via two Ju-52s named Immelmann 1 and 2, but both registered as D-2600, as Hitler had a thing for certain numbers. His brand new personal Condor was thus named Immelmann 3, but was still registered as, you guessed it, D-2600. Instead of carrying 26 passengers, Immelmann 3 was divided into two cabins, one for the Fuhrer himself, equipped with a plush, yet armored, armchair, with built-in reading light and oxygen system. There was a polished wooden table for meals or work, with built-in airspeed indicator, altimeter, radio compass, and a clock. I guess just for interest's sake? No smoking was allowed in his cabin, although his staff could smoke in the 11-seat other cabin. I don't know if special arrangements were made for keeping the circulating air supply separate, but knowing how much Hitler hated smoking, maybe there was. Another special condor named Grenzmark was used by German Foreign Minister von Rippentrop during his two flights to Moscow in 1939, when the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact was signed. The civilian version of the Condor was known as the FW-200A. Nine aircraft of this type were built, two were exported to Denmark and two others to Brazil. The FW-200B version was equipped with new BMW 132D engines generating 850 horsepower each. This should have been the fully-fledged production passenger version for sale to airlines if the war hadn't come along. But the war did come along, and the Condor quickly got recruited into the Luftwaffe. 
It actually started with a request from the Japanese Navy for a long-range maritime reconnaissance version. This was named the FW-200B1 and had additional fuel tanks included and gun positions installed on top of the fuselage as well as a ventral gondola with fore and aft gunner positions. With the outbreak of war though, exports were cancelled and the aircraft was not delivered to Japan. But the Luftwaffe liked the look of the aircraft for their own use and ordered it with changes requested and the result was the FW-200C. It had a beefed up structure and bomb racks installed on the wings that could carry four 550 pound bombs. An even longer ventral gondola, which was offset to starboard, was added to the belly with a 20mm gun installed position in front and a 7.9mm MG-15 machine gun in the rear. The gondola also housed a bomb bay that could carry 550 pounds of bombs. There were machine gun positions added above and behind the cockpit and another in a dorsal position. The bomb capacity was 250 kilograms in the gondola and two 250 kilogram bombs under the outboard engine nacelles and two more under the outer wing panels. The Condor was going to war. Before we look at operational history, I'd like to take a short minute to tell you about Magic Mind. Podcasting is not my day job, and so I get up around 5 and 6 a.m. to produce these episodes before work or other activities, and too much coffee is often involved. I've been trying to cut back, and lately my family and I have been trying a product called Magic Mind. I take one delicious shot in the morning, and the matcha, which is a kind of green tea, helps extend the effects of my morning coffee to give me a longer-lasting alertness. The other compounds help to increase physical and mental endurance, and most importantly for we folks in our 40s and 50s and beyond, enhances mental clarity. The other day, after having my magic mind shot, I was able to spend a few hours podcasting, then I did heavy physical work on a concrete patio, then I piloted my airplane to another city to pick up my mom, and bring her home all on a challenging weather day. I didn't have my usual afternoon coffee, but you know, I didn't need it. I was even able to stay awake with my wife in the evening to watch TV, and that's saying something. She's happy as the shots contain turmeric, which she's always trying to get me to eat, but I dislike it. But as I said before, these shots taste great. Magic Mind has created a special offer for me to share with you warbirders. You get up to 56% off your first subscription in the next 10 days and 20% off your one-time purchase with the code WARBIRDS20. You can get it at magicmind.com warbirds and redeem the discount code WARBIRDS20. But hurry up, the 56% discount only lasts 10 days from our episode airing date. Look for the link in the program notes and on all the Warbird socials. Now on to operational history. Kampf Geschkevater 40 was formed in July of 1940 and operated out of Bordeaux Marignan airfield in France and began working in conjunction with the Kriegsmarine's U-boats. In this way, the Allies' Atlantic convoys could be attacked both from above and below. 
it was actually the perfect combo. For although the U-boats had the main ship-killing power with their torpedoes, being very low in the water, they had very poor visibility. With the extreme long range of the Condor, the aircraft could find the vulnerable merchant ships, fix their position, call in the Grey Wolves, and also do their own strafing and bombing. As the convoys initially had no air cover, there was little that they could do versus this coordinated attack. An example of this coordination was the attack on the RMS Empress of Britain, operated by Canadian Pacific Steamship Company. Since the start of the war, the Empress had been acting as a troop ship. On the morning of the 26th of October 1940, about 70 miles northwest of Ireland, the ship was spotted by a condor commanded by Oberleutnant Bernard Jopp. He dove in for three strafing attacks and hit her twice with his 550-pound bombs. Although few aboard were hurt, the ship was on fire and eventually the order was given to abandon ship, with most of her crew being picked up by escorting destroyers. The liner refused to sink, though, and she was taken under tow, escorted by two destroyers with daylight top cover from short Sunderland flying boats. But submarine U-32 had been ordered to the area. During the day, it had to dive to avoid the Sunderlands, but at night, it relocated the ships, approached the Empress, and put a torpedo into her, giving her the coup de grace. Between August 1940 and February 1941, the unit claimed to have sunk over 363,000 tons, and Churchill always fearful of the threat of the U-boats, called the Condor the Scourge of the Atlantic. Now, not everything was rainbows and unicorns for the Condor crews. The airframe had been designed for civilian use, not the rigors of warfare, especially with all the extra weight or weapons added. This stress made itself known when Condors started breaking their backs during landings. It has been reported that at least eight FW-200Cs broke in half just after the wing during landing. That must have sucked so bad to think that you're home safe after a long mission and you just want to go and take a leak and have a beer when your airplane breaks in half just after you touch down. Crews also wanted more guns and they complained about a fragile fuel system. The answer was the FW-200C-3 with a further reinforced airframe, a new dorsal gun turret, and two new waste guns, and an increase in bomb load. It also had more powerful 1200 horsepower BMW 323R2 engines in order to haul all this extra kit into the air. To aid in the attack, the crew had the Revy bomb site for low-level attacks, or the Loft 7D site for attacks at altitude. Later versions had anti-shipping radars installed. All of this extra stuff again added to the weight, which reduced the speed and range, and also crews were warned that brusque evasive maneuvers could result in structural failures. Endurance was between 14 hours and 18 hours, depending on the combination of fuel and bombs, giving a range of about 2,400 miles. As for the Allies, something had to be done about this scourge of the Atlantic. 
And as the expression goes, they came up with a desperate measure for the desperate times. What they came up with was known as the CAM ship, or Catapult Aircraft Merchant. This was a merchant ship with a rocket-propelled catapult installed that would bring a single, expendable Hawker Hurricane that was known as a Huracat, or a Catafighter, into the sky so that it could go after the annoying condors. As there was nowhere for the fighter to land, the pilot would either bail out or ditch after the mission was complete, which must have been strange and terrifying to know just before he got launched. Although only eight combat launches from cam ships were ever made, their hunting bag was very good as they shot down eight German aircraft, four of them being Condors. Of course, all eight Hurricanes were lost, but only one of the Hurricat pilots died in the effort. Of course, we'll never know how many of the convoy ships were saved by this sacrifice. We do know that KG-40 changed their tactics in order to try to preserve the numbers of aircraft and crew. Condor crews were ordered to stop attacking and to avoid combat. They were to locate and shadow the convoys and send radio reports to allow the Kriegsmarine to vector wolf packs of U-boats to intercept and do the dirty work. But things were to get worse for the Condor crews. On the 20th of September 1941, a Condor attacked a convoy escorted by HMS Audacity, which was a new kind of ship. Audacity had actually been a German ship, the Hanover, which, after a series of unfortunate events, ended up being captured in Jamaica. The Brits ripped off her superstructure and installed a flight deck and called her an escort carrier. She carried eight Martlet fighters, which was what the Royal Navy called the Grumman Wildcat. On her very first convoy escort, the Martlets of the Audacity shot down a Condor, and on a subsequent voyage of the carrier, they bagged four Condors. On the 14th of December 1941, Convoy HG-76, escorted by Audacity, sailed from Gibraltar and fought it out with the German units that were sent to attack it. The Martlets knocked down two more Condors and strafed the U-131. Although one of the Martlets was shot down by AA fire from the sub, the U-31 wasn't able to dive afterwards and so was scuttled by her crew, who were taken prisoner. U-751 evened things up when she torpedoed the Audacity and sunk her. But the concept had been proven, and the Allies would build more and more cam ships, and they would also build merchant ships with small flight decks, which were called MAC ships, and the ultimate in-convoy protection, escort carriers. The Condor has the dubious distinction of being the very first German aircraft to be shot down by USAAF pilots when it was bounced by a Curtis P-40C Warhawk and a Lockheed P-38F Lightning over Iceland. In 1943, Condors were sent east to be used as transports to help during the desperate times of the Battle of Stalingrad. The ones that survived returned to their maritime reconnaissance role where they had a new weapon to try, the Henschel HS-293A anti-ship missile. 
This was a rocket-powered, radio-controlled, air-to-surface missile that would be dropped by aircraft and then guided onto a ship via a controller with a joystick. The missile was built around a standard 500kg bomb with guidance equipment installed and a rocket engine with 10 seconds of thrust added. The missile also had a glowing flare that burned in flight so that the operator could see where it was on its flight path. The Allies did develop jamming countermeasures, which forced the missile to repeatedly turn right, messing up the aim. But it did sink or damage at least 25 ships. At the time, for the purposes of combat, the Condor was now being replaced by other purpose-built aircraft and production ended in early 1944 after delivery of 263 machines. This citizen-soldier warbird would continue to serve until the very end of the war, but mainly as a transport. Survivors It's rare that I get to the end of an episode with a feeling of sadness. Yes, you've often heard me say that I wish that an example of an aircraft survives when it doesn't, or regret that we can't see a certain aircraft in an airworthy condition. But this time, it's more about what could have been when it came to this airliner. It basically went from a civilian prototype to being pressed into battle, and although it did well, it was never meant for this role. How would this airliner have matured if it had had peace and time to do so. Of course, the German aircraft industry was a shambles after the war, and so there were no post-war Condors being built, and so we never saw the kind of development that we saw with the Lockheed Constellation and the Super Connies that came down the line eventually for years of service until the jet age. I guess I'm just sad for what could have been. I am pleased to report that a surviving Condor can be viewed at Hangar 7 of the Berlin Tempelhof Airport. Condor number 63 ditched in the Trondheim Fjord in Norway in 1942. The aircraft sank and stayed there for 57 years until being raised in 1999. The condition of the aircraft was so bad that part of the fuselage broke up during the recovery. But after 20 years of work and stitching together parts from multiple survivors and using some newly built sections, the aircraft now sits complete and can represent all the Condors that came down the assembly line. Thanks again to all who support the podcast via PayPal at WOWB17. And if you haven't, please consider. I support the podcasts that I listen to. If you like to watch as well as listen, check out the YouTube channel. And you can also check out some photos of what we've been talking about on the Facebook page. And we're also on Instagram and threads. Until next time.